Okay, Sunday morning. Spent a couple of hours this morning working on my adventure, which is awesome. Um, I've done the five-node mystery bit of it, really. Um, I'm not going to spoil any of that, but basically um, a mystery in the fort town village of Grimm's Fort, um, which ultimately should point the characters to a particular location on the map, which I guess, if you're a regular listener, you'll suspect is the temple um and from there i've now really just got to like detail the first level of that temple and create a series um of a sort of essentially a key for the map i did um a series of you know various bits of um stuff to encounter i guess and um clues so Probably another couple of hours work, but the whole thing should be quite a reasonable short adventure. The sort of thing that you could probably play certainly in one to two sessions, I would have thought. Um, you know, regular size sessions. Um, when I run this at school, it'll end up being probably several nights. Um, and you have an hour and a half game time, so you're probably looking at sort of three or four, maybe more sessions. So plenty of material. Um, I've not statted anything. I've just like outlined the actual adventure and all I really need to do is add in stats for stuff, which isn't too difficult because uh, there's there's nothing too outrageously different to worry about. Um, so I'm going to st- dual stat it. I'm going to stat it for Castles and Crusades to run on Tuesday night because I need to start running the game on Tuesday. But I'm also going to stat it for GURPS because that's the thing I'm trying to learn. Anyway... That's the latest update. Um, time for some hot chocolate and morning breakfast with my lovely wife. Welcome to the Roleplay Rescue Game Master's Journal. My name is Che Webster and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of my own Game Master journey. Each journal episode features my audio notes recorded here and there over the weeks between my regular gaming sessions. It's a pretty candid snapshot of my inner life as a gamer, so you have been warned. Game on. Hi Chase, Colin here, Spike Pit. Man, I really enjoyed you talking about your old games workshop days and, you know, putting in a good word for wargaming. For a good time, wargaming was my main engagement with the hobby of gaming. I've still got all my my figures, my armies, and, yeah, yeah, you, you had it right with... Gaming is gaming, man. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to see these different factions and splinter groups knocking each other. That kind of makes me sad, really. We, we, uh, all share a, a pretty common interest when it comes down to it. And yeah, some great World War Two games. And I, also enjoy the skirmish games, particularly the Osprey stuff. And I used to play a nice World War Two game called Crossfire. Hey, Che, I liked your podcast a lot. I enjoyed listening to how 
the you got in trouble for buying the miniatures, but you're doing it now, and that's really really good. And it, it's unfortunate how some hobbies cost so much money. Like I like to build stuff, and last summer Tim bought me a whole bunch of uh, tools, like drills and stuff like that, and circ saws. And no, it's a little bit of chunk of change right there in the beginning to start out. But yeah, it's so worth it. I mean, we're 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 in this life for like a blink and it's over and it's so worth it to just invest in those hobbies that just feed our soul. So I hope you continue to do that. Excellent podcast and I look forward to hearing another one from you. Whisk out. Colin Green and Ivy the Happy Whisk there. Thanks guys for calling in. Colin, yeah, I'm with you on gaming, man. I used to play Crossfire as well. I played laser stuff actually back in the day. All sorts of things. Um, yeah, you're right. I'm right, maybe. I don't know what it was I said. Uh, gaming is just gaming, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Different types of game, lots of different styles and approaches. So different kind of um, goals and outcomes, I guess, as well. But in the end, you know, we're playing games. And I think we've got to stick together as a community. I think dividing ourselves is counterproductive. Um, but then, you know me, you know, I'm here. I, I want to accept you for who you are, um, no matter what you're into, really. Um, I'm trying to understand and... Um, yeah, you know, get people around a table. And Ivy, whew, thanks for reminding me. We're here for a short period. Uh, 4,000 weeks, the average lifespan of a human being. And I uh, I keep that in mind these days, you know. Um, I've got fewer of those ahead than behind. And I'm not even going to waste a single one of those days. So, yeah, thanks for the encouragement. It's great to hear from you both. All the best. Hey, Che. I'm recording this in a recording app instead of on Anchor because of the minute limitation and I'm from Texas so we tend to draw a little and ramble anyway um, I was listening to your latest GM journal and I heard the bit about wanting to do World War II fantasy gaming and it brought something to mind it's not quite World War II it's probably more Cold War but you may be able to adapt it um, look on RPG Net, there's a very long thread with over a thousand entries about a setting riff called the long stairs and basically it is something that happens after some nuclear testing there's a rip in reality that goes into a Gygaxian dungeon and I mean it may actually just be a like a plane of existence that is a Gygaxian dungeon everywhere but um, the United States government sends in um, Marines and, you know, SEAL teams, etc., to go in, find, um, see what's down there. They find monsters, they find magic items, they bring some of them back. And also other countries, uh, Russia, England, North Korea, they all end up finding their own rips into this reality. And so you start having issues in the real world where magic items have come out of this dungeon and they're finding play in intelligence operations and in industrial espionage. And so you can have play inside the dungeon. You can have play on the battlefield. You can have play with intelligence operations. Um, I think the setting would be pretty interesting. Um, I've seen a riff by 
an OD&Der where he took um, some of his um, creations for um, kind of World War II, Cold War, man-to-man combat um, character classes. And he ran it with OD&D, um, so that way you don't have to change any of the monsters, the magic items, he just created some character classes. Um, of course, you know, you have your books for Amazing Adventures, you could do that, or for Savage Worlds. Um, anyway, I thought I would share this, and I'll also attach a link to the thread. Um, I don't know that's something I would ever run, but I definitely way back a few years ago, I read the entire thread, and it's an interesting concept. I think it would make a really good campaign, so I thought I would share it with you. Anyway, uh, here you go. Thanks. Bye. Well, all right, Mike Bowers there. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for sending it as a you know separate file to the email address. Uh, that's a great option for people. So, guys, you know, if you don't want to use Anchor, you don't like that one-minute um, kind of limit, you know, email me. That's what Mike did. Hello at RPGRescue.com. Um, great setting idea. I absolutely need to check that out. And I've got to confess that I haven't had a chance yet, but absolutely got it. I'm a bit daunted by a thousand, um, you know, posts. But, hey, if there's a lot of good ideas in there, I'll go steal them. Mike, it's great for you to call in and, and share that idea. And this is what it's about, isn't it, in the hobby? It's about our sharing of the things we know about and the things that we are interested in and the things that we've discovered. And even if it's not something we ourselves are playing, I think that the fact that we spend our time reading and, and looking around and digging around stuff means we can help other people find the game they want. And um, I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Perhaps it's a way of justifying all those books I buy and all those hours I spend online. Man, brilliant to hear from you. Thank you, Mike. Oh, next call. New call in, which is fantastic. A new caller, newly discovering the podcast. And he fell foul, I think. He fell foul of the one-minute limit. But let's hear what he had to say, because he's awesome. Hi, Che. This is a message from Rob from Manchester. Uh, I've just started listening to your podcast. Picked it up through the recommendation of Dirk the Dice on the Grognard Files. Um, basically, I've been going through your episodes a bit randomly and picked up two that I thought were very interesting. The game I want to run, just to let you know that people are playing uh, Monty Cook games. I'm on my second Numenera campaign that I'm running, and it really does sound like something that would interest you in terms of the mix of the fantastic and the science fiction and the the magic and the mystery. In my first campaign, my players have rescued bird-like creatures from the depths of a pyramid, uh, travelled to a walking city across a cold desert, solved a murder mystery, which turns out it was a mysterious gas killing people, uh, and then transported to space uh, accidentally. Um, Now then, there you go. Rob, thanks for calling in, and I'm really sorry you got cut off after the minute. Kind of, we have this thing in the OSR, if you want it, you can... uh, Record a second one. We call it Pulling a Jackson after the eponymous Matt Jackson, um, Matt Random. Um, yeah, I I really do like Monty Cook stuff, okay? Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, I have yet to come across a group who are playing it. I, I have a mate who, who is gaming with us again now 
who's really into Numenera, would really love to play that. I've got books for Numenera bought into Discovery, and I really got excited about the setting, and I really like it. I have had a run-through of the Numenera Discovery starter swap set as well. I've actually had a run-through of that game um, with my game group, um, but didn't kind of hook them. So I'm, I don't know, I'm just really disappointed I can't get to game with it. Um, and therefore, maybe it's just my limited perception that makes me think that nobody else is, or very few people are playing this stuff. That being said, you know, the other side of that corner, one of the reasons why I wonder is because sometimes those beautiful books they are so beautiful, they're so great to read. Um, but I don't know how many people are playing. I'm really glad that you've got a gate group going up in Manchester and I'm really great, glad that you've been playing for a while. And um, maybe I just need to get myself up to Mank. Maybe you can run me a game. Thanks for calling in, Rob. Really great to hear from you. And um, also, if you're listening to this, Dirk, Dirk the Dice of Grognard Files, thank you so, 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 so much, Armchair Adventurers. A, for supporting us on Patreon, and B, for recommending us and mentioning us on the Grognard Files. I'm so grateful. Game on! started looking through one of the GURP source books this morning, and I was reminded of why I like games with, for want of a better word, crunchy bits. What I mean is detailed statistical differences between things. Um, so, for example, with monsters, I really like games that have essentially monsters that come in variants. So, for example, perhaps there's more than one type of zombie or skeleton or goblin or orc, and they have an actual mechanical difference as well as just story difference. Now, I fully appreciate that for a lot of people. This is just fiddly. But for me, it really helps me. I, uh, I find that overly simple games with light stats uh, rely all, always on the fiction. And I'm very good at forgetting about the details of the fiction. So it kind of becomes a challenge for me to remember that this particular type of goblin has these particular differences and that one has that and but they're both using the same basic set of stats and I guess what I'm confessing to is that the crunchiness of a game helps remind me to differentiate I don't know what it is it's about putting that little mechanical detail in the notes for me reminds me to bring it up in play and use it in play um it's probably the, the wargamer in me, um, but it's also probably to do with my mindset. I'm quite analytical, and I like to codify difference. And, uh, yeah, I just think that games with that level of detail for me are easier to run, actually, oddly. I've got to remember all those details, um, but actually the act of referring to them reminds me and then I use them, whereas if I don't have those details written down, I would forget about them. Now, obviously, I could extend a stat block for any simple game and just add the de the you know the details I need. But I don't know. I'm just kind of grateful for games like GURPS that have a bit of crunch, really, a bit of detail. It actually genuinely differentiates things. It feels more real to me that creature X has this thing and creature Y doesn't. And 
whilst I can happily reskin things still within that kind of framework, um, it means that every creature is potentially unique and different and, you know, that is a real thing, that is a tangible thing. It is not just a thing I'm adding out of my head and spinning out of, out of the air to try and give the illusion of difference. No, no, no. This is mechanically, tangibly, really different. And I don't know whether that should matter. It probably shouldn't. But it kind of does for me. And it makes life easier for me. It's a Monday evening and I've just got back from work. And it's been nagging me all day that what I didn't do yesterday was talk a bit about the process that I use to prep my five-node mystery adventure. Now, I don't want to talk about the details of the adventure. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who's listening. Um, and also, I just don't want to like you know, put it all out there. Um, but there are basically two elements to my adventure. There's a five-node five mystery. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then please go reading, um, go read, uh, sorry, listen to the Mystery Making podcast. Uh, which I think is season three, episode eight, and but what I'm doing is I am uh, basically constructed a five-node mystery that leads. The fifth node is actually a dungeon location, um, and it's the first level of uh, a dungeon. Now there are other levels to that dungeon because I really, being um, a sandbox builder, that that location is going to be a place where I hope the adventurers will go back to again and again. But they only need to engage with the first level of that uh, dungeon. Now that's the bit I have yet to write. I just need to detail out the the dungeon. The dungeon is drawn. If you like, the map is done. I have some ideas. I just kind of need to annotate my map with kind of what's in locations and kind of put the situation together really. Um, which is something I'll talk about perhaps later. What I wanted to do is just outline my process in getting the five-node mystery done because it occurred to me that I sort of ended up working back to front and then front to back. Let me explain. I started with, I actually started with uh, the conclusions I wanted my players to come to. So at the end of my mystery, the conclusion I wanted them to come to was this thing. That is, is the cause of that thing over there. There's a thing that happens at the start, what the hell's going on? And if they follow that chain of clues through, they find the conclusion they're looking for. This is the answer to that problem. So I, I built my conclusion. And then I inverted the three-clue rule. I decided what three clues did I need to include in the adventure to make sure the guys could get there. And I scattered those three clues to three different places um, in my adventure. So I, this adventure is primarily set in Grimm's Fort. And I decided what I thought the nodes would be. So initially they started as places. Over time, as I wrote this thing, they some of them changed. In fact, most of them changed into being people, which is probably a lot more flexible in a lot of ways. But I digress. So having got my the end point... I then work backwards. Okay, so now I decided what I would do is I would write the background to the story. So like, if you like the GM's secret truth of the thing, this is what happened. And there's a sequence of events. And doing that was really valuable because what I needed to do is answer a lot of questions to uh, be able to justify the storyline. Uh, there were a couple of things in there that I needed to answer that kind of logically didn't necessarily make sense. And it took me a day or two of, of kind of allowing that to mull around my brain. I didn't spend a lot of time actively thinking about it. But the way my brain works is I'll, I'll leave things to mull 
And, you know, when you're having a bath or when I'm falling asleep or uh, some other time when I'm doing something else, usually an idea pops into my mind, an answer, and I jot that down and I use the answers that are good. Sometimes I get more than one for a, a solution um, and, I'll, and I'll pick what I think is the best and most plausible or most interesting. Um, and other times, like I think one time in this particular adventure, it was really the first thing that came to mind and it was perfectly adequate. And because I was working at speed, I kind of went with that. Um, that's a thought, by the way. I often tell students that what you want to do, we have this habit, and we have a habit of metaphorically reaching up onto the shelf of ideas and picking the first thing that comes to hand. Um, what I often encourage people to do, and I like to do, is to allow two or three options to be pulled out, and then I can evaluate which I think is the most interesting or best fit or whatever. Anyway, um, coming back to the, how I wrote this thing, Having kind of worked out the background, I then decided what were the key conclusions at each stage in this investigation? What things did they need to find out? So there was this thing they need to find out, that thing they need to find out. And again, for each of those, three clues. And then decided, okay, where are they going to get those clues from? Where could they get those three clues from? And I tried to apply Occam's razor, the, the idea that you should have as few points in your explanation as possible. So I tried to keep it really simple and tight and try to fit it into I've got five five steps there are four places and then or people or whatever and then they're going to have to come to some kind of conclusion on the fifth so and they're going to resolve this thing so um that was good that kind of kept it tight having done that having got my background I then kind of stopped going from the top down I went from the bottom up so I went to the first site of the incitement if you like of the mystery the situation that sets it up and I I decided on a couple of hooks into that, uh, different ways in which I could get players involved or characters involved. So there's a rumour approach and then there's a couple of ways in which I could invite them to get involved. So if I was doing this, as I wrote one down as a one-shot. If it's a one-shot game, which is obviously something I want to keep in mind for this particular adventure, then there is a in-your-face kind of thing. Uh, this person suddenly is in-your-face doing X or this is the situation, this is it, bam, you've got to resolve it. Um, I offered a patron route. I like to use patrons a lot of times. Someone who's offering, hey, I've got this job. Can you do this job for me? Um, this mystery to solve or this problem to resolve. Um, and I try to also offer a rumour approach, as I think I mentioned, which is kind of saying, throwing out there two or three rumours and seeing if the players, you know, that hooks them. And that's a way in which I like to sort of set things up. So if the players are dicking around and doing nothing, um, then... I maybe have a patron approach them. If they are really interesting, kind of looking at all the different things that are going on around, listening to lots of rumours, and they're good at picking up on them, then obviously I'll let them choose what they want to do. If I want them involved in this adventure, and I'm you know, having invested a bit of time in this adventure, I'm hoping they're going to want to, that, that's okay if you've got the right kind of group. But I think sometimes it's useful to have someone offer it to them. They can always say no, don't get me wrong. I am not the kind of guy who forces my players to do stuff. Anyway, so from the bottom up then. So having got the incitement, then the first... Uh, node for me that was a place uh, the site of uh, a crime if you like and then from there the next the leads so I knew that I had various um, particular leads so there was a um, again I'm back to the who what why when and how uh, those questions kind of tended to create um, clues which essentially I could give to different characters and people around the town so I ended up I think with three really uh, nodes that were people um, this this person this person this person that I feel like witnesses or people who have information 
Um, and then my fifth node is the dungeon, which is going to provide further clues and evidence as to what's going on. And that's basically how I'm building it. Um, it's a pretty straightforward process. I think I did, I spent about two hours maybe working on this particular uh, mystery. It's the first time I have ever personally written a mystery from scratch. And it's pretty good. I think it's pretty solid. It seems to hold together quite well at the moment. And yeah, about two hours of work, uh, not including noodling time in the brain. But, you know, there we go. So anyway, I don't know if that's helpful. I don't even know if that's coherent or makes sense. But I hope that it helps to explain how I've approached this particular first adventure that I'm writing. Um, and uh, then, you know, the next thing for me to do is just like start that dungeon, which I don't think is going to take very long. And then I can run the thing. And I have multiple sessions here of material so so it should be good so there you go that's kind of a bit more on how i did it from what i was talking about on sunday all right it's thursday morning and i figured i'd better like check in and actually journal something um, and talk to you a little bit about what's going on um first of all it's really important to say actually that um, i'm about to enter what is probably the worst chunk of time in the year this year for me, um, in terms of work, um, and I'm not really allowed to tell you what it is. Um, shall so we just say there is a project that I am now involved in for about a month, the next three to four weeks, um, and the context of that, if you think about it, in the UK, um, tomorrow is the very last day of public examinations, really, um, for most people, certainly in our school, that's when that all stops. And um, then, of course, you've got to imagine what has to happen after that. So all the kids have had their examinations, they've written all of their answers, they sent them all off to the exam boards. And I will just leave it to your imagination as to what has to happen next and say nothing more than I have a project that is, should we say, intimately connected to um, that whole next event. What it means is that I have very limited free time for the next few weeks. So I um, essentially will be getting up and an hour or two before work, I will be doing work, uh, additional work. And after school, I will be doing additional work for probably two or three hours a day. Um, and you can imagine how, how tiring that is, but you can also imagine how um, that affects the hobby. So I'm going to be honest and say I'm not really sure what the impact's going to be. What's going on tomorrow then? What's going on with the uh, Friday nighters? Because last week I was ill and we cancelled, or I had to cancel the game. I was not in a good state. I think by the end of the day I might have been able to uh, have kind of sat there at the table and winged it. Uh, but to be honest with you, I cancelled it in the morning because I was really awful. I really, really sick and really ill. So... Um, it's interesting, though, because what's happened is another person is sort of becoming available. So our good friend Dave, who um, has been missing from our table for a very long while, is pers for personal reasons, pretty much. He's a family man. He's got kids. He's a doctor. He's very busy. You know, it, his life must be uh, one hell of a busy life. Um, but I had a message from him via we, me we, um, the start of the week, I think saying, hey, I'm available on the um, on the 21st, um, you know, what are we doing? And it didn't occur to me until about Tuesday that actually the 21st was this week, and that's sort of the alternate week to our current sequence. 
but um, checking with the guys, it looks like Andrew is definitely able to come and it looks like Ian is likely to be able to come. So it looks like we have a game night tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night. Um, and what I said is that we were planning to play Cthulhu, so I'm going to um, try and make sure um, that I've kind of read and prepped up the second Call of Cthulhu Start Set Adventure so that we can play that tomorrow night, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, it's tricky because I, like I said, I've started this additional project. Um, and so I've got to really do a lot of reading probably tonight um, and maybe tomorrow night before the game, but uh, in between doing some of this work. So it will be a challenge. But thankfully, you know, the weekend ahead, I can kind of catch up on the project work um, over the weekend. So I don't think it's going to be a very fun weekend for me uh, in terms of having a rest. Um, by the way, I always take a, at least one of the two days of the weekend as a rest day, uh, um, as a Sabbath day. But, um, you know, try and do nothing in terms of work. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to be playing through the whole weekend that way. But, um, yeah, still, if I displace work from Thursday night or Friday night, I have to do it at some point. So that'll probably be Saturday. Okay, I've been doing a lot of reading of GURPS Dungeon Fantasy and um, GURPS generally. Uh, I, I'm almost in a kind of mode of rediscovery, but it's weird. It's hard to explain. There's a sort of enlightenment going on at the moment for me. Um, I always thought I knew, you know, GURPS was a pretty cool game, but I always struggled with kind of being able to figure out how to get started and how to get into it. And there are essentially... Th I like my threes, and it's true, there are probably three elements that have sort of come together. So the first of those elements is, um, there's a cool little book, and if you are thinking about getting into GURPS and GMing, then you need this book. Um, I'm sad to say, this stuff should have ideally probably gone into um, the GURPS basic set, but, you know, it's been written much later, it's a much more recent book, I think 2016 or 17 or 18, something like that. Um, it's called How to Be a GURPS GM. Um, it's a PDF file you can get from Warehouse 23. It's also a softback book that you can get, and I believe I ordered mine through there because it's on print-on-demand via Amazon. And um, it is a very useful book if you're wanting to get into GURPS. It basically lays out all of the things that you need to think about as you're sort of getting into it, and it even does a couple of worked examples. So there's basically a sort of fantasy adventure that's being built, and there's separate chapters which kind of detail that out, that worked example. Um, now, I, I'll be honest, I haven't read the book entirely from cover to cover. It's one of those things you sort of go into and you read a bit and then you come out and, and let it ruminate. Anyway, the main insight for me was an enlightenment moment, really. Now, I've, I'll be honest, the GURPS rulebook will tell you that GURPS is a toolkit. Okay? And that sounds very straightforward and very simple. And to me, I always went, yeah, okay, it's a toolkit. But actually, I don't think I really appreciated what that, what the intention of that word was, toolkit, um, until I'd read how to be a GURPS GM. So and what I'm going to say here is um, the enlightenment for me is coming to terms with what is meant genuinely by a toolkit. Now, I kind of thought that basically what that meant was you've got to imagine a toolbox with a bunch of tools in it and, you know, 
there are a range of things that you could pick out and use for the job that you're working on. And I think that's kind of what's meant. But what I'd not appreciated and what I'd not thought about is actually that the rules themselves, um, they are uh, tools for emulating the fantasy, the fiction that you want to create, okay, that you want to do. And I hadn't fully appreciated what that what that meant. Like, you're going to use these tools to build this thing, this game, this world, actually. And you don't use all the tools, obviously. Um, but also that you kind of need to... I think one of the things about this analogy that's kind of useful is that you kind of need to get to learn how to use each of the tools in turn. And you kind of need to start with a smaller set of those tools. So one of the bits of advice from How to Be a GM... Um, which I'm not comfortable with, and I don't really like I don't, you know, this admission, if you like, but, but the advice is to leave out all the supernatural stuff to start with. Actually start with a quite mundane game and learn to play, because, you know, amazing stuff happens when you start adding in the supernatural rules, but obviously the complexity of the game kind of does go up a bit. I guess it's not complexity in terms of, like, you know, oh no, suddenly there's a whole new load of things that are really hard to learn to do. It's actually a concept, it's a complexity based on like content. The amount of content that you have to get your head around increases. And that's kind of leads to my third insight with GURPS. GURPS is a very, very simple game. Incredibly simple game. You know, it's 3d6 roll low. You've got damage rolls, which are on d6s, and it uses the dice plus adds kind of approach. You know, d6 plus 1, d6 plus 2 kind of approach. And there is um, a reaction roll, and there is um, a fright check kind of thing, and some various tables. There are critical hit tables and fumble tables and things like that, which are kind of come off the back of um, various mechanics. There are there are rules for using um, a grid of miniatures, but that's optional. There are rules for everything under the sun you can imagine. But they're all pretty much optional. You know, the game is 3d6 rolled low. There's dice and adds, and basically there are reaction checks. You know that if you don't, if the GM hasn't decided what the reaction of a person or a creature is to the, the group, then you can roll. Um, by the way, I love that. That's something that's incredibly old school, and I think an incredibly important part of role playing games. And I think perhaps one of the things that's missing from many many modern games the reaction roll. Anyway, I digress. So basically, that's how you play GURPS. And GURPS has basically four stats when you roll under those if you're testing them. Um, but it's a skills-based system. So those stats can be upgraded um, when you buy skills. And you basically you take, say, for example, you are doing, um, I don't know, if you want to fight with a broadsword, that's a dexterity-based skill. And you take your dexterity and you spend some points to modify that. Um, it's a point-to-build system in terms of building characters. You spend some points to upgrade your your, your skills so maybe if you want to have your your sword skill at your dexterity um that might cost you a couple of points if you want to take it up to dexterity plus one then it costs you a few more points um so you know if my dexterity is 12 and i take it at dex plus one then my broadsword skill is 13 or less easy piece of lemon squeezy um it's on a 3d6 roll so it's on that bell curve it's a really sweet bell curve you know um which kind of gives you a sense of expertise and that's the core of the game. I mean, it's really that simple. The thing is that as you start adding details, so, you know, 
the thing that makes the GURPS look complicated is that there are a billion choices of things that you can add to your character. I mean, the skills alone, there are, you know, I don't know exactly how many, but there are probably hundreds or more. Uh, hundreds, possibly. Um, but of course, it's up to the GM what's in use, because to be honest with you, there's every skill there from, you know, kind of, you know, there's all the weapon skills you could imagine, like every different type of weapon, axe, mace skill, broadsword skill, short sword skill, bow skill, knife skill, uh, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but there are also skills for things that you may or may not want in your game. I mean, it's a panhandling skill. That's one that comes to mind, you know. I don't think there's basket weaving, but you kind of get the feeling that you could pretty much have this as granular as you want. Of course, what's really cool with GURPS is you can go the other way as well. There are cinematic rules which allow you to aggregate all your skills into one, which is um, noted with an exclamation mark at the end. So, for example, you could have the soldier exclamation mark skill. And basically what you say is yeah, anything to do with soldiery stuff, roll that skill. So if you want to make GURPS really light, you know, if you're um, really wanting to not have all those skills, then you just go cinematic and you sort of decide there are some key areas of expertise, you know. Um, you could have, uh, I don't know, pilots, exclamation mark, in a space game, and that could be everything to do with starships, piloting, bridge stuff. And you just decide that's under that and kind of wing it on the fly. And I liked that because if you wanted a really light game and you weren't too worried about like detail and crunch, then you go cinematic. I like my, uh, my crunch and detail, as I think I've discussed before. So for me, the skill system is nice, and it's probably in some ways a little bit much. Um, but, you know, as GM, you can cut your cloth, and that's where I'm back to the toolkit. You know, it's about saying, well, what level of granularity do I want? Because GURPS will let you choose. The game itself is quite rooted in reality. Uh, it tries to emulate uh, a world that's kind of grounded in the physics and science and things. But not in a way that's, you know, so if anything gets in a way of playability, they tend to sort of simplify the rule. Um, and of course, everything you put in, every layer of detail is optional. So there's a sort of basic combat system, which is at the back of the character's book, and it's very, very straightforward. And then there's the combat system. And then there's the combat system plus grids, which makes things even more precise and detailed. And then there's a load of special circumstances stuff that you can add in. Um, and that goes to the level of detail of things like over-penetration on bullets and all sorts of malarkey. And again, you choose what you want for your setting to emulate the kind of fiction that you want. I'm saying I had a revelation and enlightenment about you know how to build this. And the problem is, of course, there's a lot of upfront work for the GM to really make sure that he's chosen all the things, he or she's chosen all the things that they want, okay, and that fit the fiction. And that means that you've got to know your fiction. That means you've got to set back and say, what am I doing? What's my my story? And so for me, that's led to kind of considering how I would build a game. And I think I would do that by starting by building an adventure. And this is going back to Frank Turfler's advice in his interview. He said with Savage Worlds, you know, that if you want to learn to play Savage Worlds, great, go and have a game with someone, get someone to show you to play, because that's a great way of learning. But if you really want to learn Savage Worlds, write an adventure. And I think that's probably true of a lot of games. And I think it's also certainly true of GURPS, because I think it's true of toolkit games. I think, like, Savage Worlds is a toolkit, and GURPS is a toolkit. And these games 
they take some getting your head around because there are those options and you need to like get your head around all those choices. And I think as GM, you have to own the rules and and I thought I think not just own the books but own the rules. You have to own what's in your game. And actually, I think players in a lot of ways need to like butt out of like the rule books um, except as a reference guide. I think players should approach the game, uh, the rule book as this is a, an encyclopedia or, or, you know, if you like, of all of the things that I could potentially have. But understand that they don't have to wade through all of that and choose from everything because not everything is going to be in the game. I'm hoping from that, like, you can kind of see how, like, adding in magic, for example, just adds a whole new layer of choices and a whole new layer of um, things to think about, which is going to add to complexity. It's not a complexity of difficulty in terms of, you know, the rules are the same. You're rolling, if you want to cast a spell, if the spell is like a skill, you learn it like a skill, and you test it, and you spend mana points, magic points, to cast that spell off. That's a very simple thing. Um that's not difficult to get your head around if you've already learned how to play GURPS. What's difficult is the interaction of the spells, because one of the cool things about GURPS spells is they have prerequisites, um, and they might be abilities and skill levels and things, but they often also involve other spells you need to know. So if you like, there's a kind of hierarchy of spells. There are the very basic, simple spells, which you need to learn before you can use more complex spells. And again, it's an approach to magic that I really like because it is, it's more reasonable and it gets me away from this kind of random grab bag of spells that a lot of games have. I'm looking at you, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, but the core mechanic is the same. 3d6, roll low, testing your ability. Everything is like a skill, really. Um, and you build the game from that. And now I'm wondering where I was going with all of that. I was saying I had had an enlightenment moment. I've had an understand. I'm finally getting my head around how to play this game and build this game. And it excites me. It really does. It really is a good game. And on that note, I'm going to have to go to work. But um, I don't know whether that's of any interest to anyone else in the world or any use to you. But I wanted to get it off my chest. I wanted to get it out there and say I'm really enjoying that. It's Friday night. We just finished a game session with Call of Cthulhu. Been using the starter set Second Adventure, which um, name of which eludes me right now. Um, but great, actually really pleased as well. Friend Dave has joined the group again. Um, so Ian, Dave, and Andy all playing Call of Cthulhu together. You know the starter set. I have to say that Call of Cthulhu starter set, guys, for twenty pounds, is an absolute steal. It's awesome. You got. Uh, basic rules including how to make characters. Well, you know, all star sets don't have character rules. This one does. You've got a solo adventure to play on your own. You've got an adventure for a couple of people. One player and you, or maybe two players. And then you've got two more adventures for between two and five characters. Two and five players and a GM. Um, phenomenal value, plus dice. Handouts printed out for you. Spare character sheets and a lot of pre-generated characters. I mean... Yeah, it's good value. Anyway, really enjoying that. And we played through about half or so of the adventure. They've done all the investigational stuff and are now ready to sort of potentially think about how they're going to confront the um, the uh, hmm, 
thing uh, that they've got to deal with. Yeah, really good time. Um, I think there's an outside possibility the guys want to come together again um, next Friday for finishing it off, but it's all a bit difficult with you know people's schedules, so we're going to see if we can do that. Um, fingers crossed we can. Um, because after that game, if we don't, whether we do or don't meet next week, it looks like everybody's pretty much away for the summer, and we'll start our Castle and Crusades game in September. Um, I lent my friend Dave a copy of the Castle and Crusades rulebook so he can have a look at that and get his head around it. Um, so there's some indications what I may have um, the campaign to go. Really, really pleased. Had a really good time. Um, and um, yeah, feel good. Additional comment. I had a few comments on me, we, and around on Facebook actually as well. People seem to be a bit concerned about my um, uh, gamer ADD, as I think a lot of people call it. <laughs> uh, going off and gurpsing and stuff. Um, don't worry, guys. I, I, I know that my gaming group wants to play Castle and Crusades. I have made it clear to them that I'm going to genre bend a little bit, but we... You know, we're going to be playing Castle Crusades. I might steal some stuff out of um, Amazing Adventures uh, and such. What I'm doing with my GURPS game, I guess I haven't said this out loud, I'm going to write some scenarios and I'm going to stat them up for GURPS, but I'm also... Uh, I want to make it clear that, you know, my game, my current approach of gaming, you know, I, I think I've talked about this before, I'm just going to do it again. There's a holy trinity, <laughs> if you'll forgive me. There's a trinity of things that make up a... Um, in my mind, the three building blocks of a really good role-playing game. And um, one of them is the setting, the world. I prefer the world world. Um, the second is the game structure or the game structures that you choose. So, you know, dungeon crawls, hex crawls, and mysteries, um, the use of node-based planning, um, all those tools are the fundamental ones that help you build your game. And then, of course, there's game rules. And for me, I can build an adventure which is built out of game structures and set within a world, and I can interchange the rules fairly easily. Um, rules do affect the flavour of the game. They affect the tone of things and how things play out in actuality. But for me, that's the, probably the most optional part. You know, I could actually run several settings, worlds, and many game structures with any of a hundred different games that I own. So that doesn't really worry me. And yeah, I'm going to write and try and learn GURPS on a personal level, um, but I'm going to be interchanging Castle and Crusade rules for anything I do fantasy-wise. So um, please don't worry. I, I do get that I've committed and my guys want to play a particular game, and that's fine. What I will be doing um, is GURPSing solo and GURPSing with my writing, because I really want to get my head around that multi-genre game. And it will be the same when Savage Worlds comes. When I get the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition, I will be wanting to play it. And again, I will be, you know, writing for it and playing around with it. And, you know, should anyone want a game, um, I'll be happy to run one. Anyway, I'll stop blithering on now. I've got to get to bed. That's it for another GM's Journal episode. As always, please let me know what you think and drop me an anchor voice message to share your response. My goal is to create a community of discovery about role-playing games in which you can feel accepted, whether as a player or as a game master. Come and join the conversation. 
In the meantime, all that's left is to wish you a fond farewell and all the best at your gaming table. My name is Che Webster, and this has been a Roleplay Rescue GM's Journal episode. See you again on the flip side. Game on.